Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. President Biden's top labor advisor taking on a new role. Los Angeles turning into Strike City. A new leader at the Treasury Employees Union. And today on the show, the Missouri AFL-CIO on the BUD program. And how a court ruling can be interpreted by an anti-union judge. Welcome to the Friday, August 11th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with Jake Hummel. Jake is president of the Missouri State Labor Federation, MissouriAFLCIO.org is the website. And he is going to talk about the Missouri Works Initiative. And we touched on this a couple of weeks ago when we had Sean McGarvey on the show Sean, of course, head of the North American Building Trades, and he referenced what was going on in the state of New Jersey. It's called the BUD Program, Building Union Diversity. It started almost 10 years ago, 2014, and has since built a successful, and I mean successful, track record of connecting St. Louis metropolitan residents with the growing Opportunities for Living Wage Employment in Construction. Bud is also helping to address the growing need in the construction industry for a skilled and more inclusive workforce. Now, here's the deal. It's a six-week union construction pre-apprenticeship program offered at no charge, no charge, to selected individuals who meet the admission requirements. And Jake is going to run all of that down. It's recognized as a comprehensive apprenticeship readiness program by NABTU, North American Building Trades. And it offers enrollees a comprehensive introduction to construction employment by using NABTU's nationally recognized multi-craft core curriculum, MC3, providing relevant national skills certification training, with a particular focus on job safety. Also, during the program, participants have the opportunity to visit and engage in hands-on learning at several apprenticeship training schools. It's an amazing program, and here's the best part. It's working. Listen to these numbers. Graduation rate, 92% of those that begin the BUD program, completing their training and graduating placement rate 82 percent now you know what the trades are doing they're trying to be very inclusive we're talking diversity now in an industry where only six percent of the workforce is comprised of minorities and women listen to this 26 and a half percent of bud graduates are women 79.2 percent almost four out of five are minorities So this is a great program. It needs to be talked about. It needs to be embraced by a number of metropolitan areas. So we're going to talk with uh, Jake Hummel as our first guest. Our second guest is going to be Andrew Strom. Now, Andrew is filling in for our labor lawyer, 
Joyce Goldstein. She's taken a few months off. She's working on a very uh, detailed project. And she said, Flash, I'll be back in October. I miss doing the show. But uh, Andrew Strom, who's been on the show a couple of times, he'll be uh, filling in. And uh, for the next couple of months here anyway, he is an associate general counsel for the Service Employees International Union, giant union in New York, 32BJ. Now, he's not speaking on their behalf. He is a blogger for On Labor, which is a it's a uh, service of the Harvard Law School. In fact, uh, Andrew graduated magna cum laude from Harvard. He's also author of Caught in a Vicious Cycle, A Weak Labor Movement Emboldens the Ruling Class. What he's going to talk about on the show today is the importance of not just one, but all Supreme Court decisions. And here's a case that's going to happen this fall. It's uh, Loper Bright versus Raimondo. It's not a labor case, okay? However, it has major implications for workers, says Andrew. The issue in the case is something called the Chevron deference, and he's going to explain that on the show. He points out that the Supreme Court has long held that when an agency like the NLRB or OSHA or the EPA interprets a statute that it's supposed to administer, the agency's interpretation is entitled to deference by the courts. What this means is that when the NLRB issues a decision interpreting, save the National Labor Rights Act, a principled right-wing judge, and there are many, would say, I might not have interpreted this language this way. (laughs) Okay, you follow me? The case represents another power grab by right-wing justices. All of labor's enemies, says Andrew, recognize its importance. The Chamber of Commerce, National Right to Work Legal Defense Fund, and a collection of employer associations have all filed briefs calling for the court to sharply limit Chevron, the Chevron decision. Basically, the right wing is worried. And for good reason. They can't win presidential elections, so they figure, well, let's screw workers in the courts. The Democrats are not likely to be able to do away with the filibuster. Let's be honest about that. So they can't pass any new legislation. So the only way voters can have any hope of implementing any of the policies they support is to keep electing Democrats and have those Democrats appoint the heads of agencies. So right now, with that being the case, all the right-wing machinery is trying to put a stop to this and give the courts more power to block what agencies are trying to do. It's quite fascinating. It's the mechanics of what's going on with with the courts, with policies, with legislation. So we're going to zero in on that. We're also going to talk about why federal judges matter to workers. And there's a case involving a woman by the name of Sarah Black. She was a shop steward at a nursing home for military vets, and she was fired for bullying a co-worker. Well, case went to arbitration. Long story short on this, the employer did what they called judge shopping, and they found a district court which was compiled of very conservative and corporate lawyers. And guess what the outcome was? Sarah Black got screwed because of the decision by the district court. 
So important. So important. And keep in mind, federal judges, once they get that appointment, they are in there for life. So lots to talk about with Andrew Strom as our uh, second guest right here on America's Workforce. Unions in the news making news. This labor update brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management, offering fixed income real estate equity investment options to clients nationwide. You can find more at BoydWatterson.com. President Biden's top labor advisor, Celeste Drake, has resigned from her position to become the deputy director general of the International Labor Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. Her departure comes at a crucial time as labor unions report over 650,000 U.S. workers either are on strike or threatening to strike in 2023. Drake played a pivotal role in advising Biden's team on labor talks, labor negotiations affecting the supply chain and the economy. And her departure has prompted discussions about her successor and the administration's continued focus on labor issues. She is one heck of a leader. We wish her well, and we're going to miss her there. Let's go to Los Angeles, where city workers represented by SEIU 721, they went on strike this week. The union announced on Twitter the strike would last only for 24 hours. And they shared images of picketers outside the Los Angeles City Hall. Get this. The strike marks the first major city worker strike in over 15 years. We're talking 11,000 city workers, including sanitation workers, heavy duty mechanics, traffic officers, engineers. They all took part. And the strike comes as part of increased organized labor activity in Los Angeles and across the country, coinciding with the simultaneous strike of Hollywood writers and actors, as well as intermittent work stoppages by hotel workers. The union cites unfair labor practices as the reason for the strike, alleging that the city failed to negotiate in good faith and engaged in labor practices that restricted employee and union rights. By the way, the strike is expected to cause disruptions at the Los Angeles International Airport, the Port of Los Angeles, and City Hall, as well as other picketing sites. The union plans to return to negotiations with the city next week to discuss the successor contract to the one-year agreement, which was signed last November. Lots of unrest out there. Let's talk about the new leader at the National Treasury Employees Union. We had uh, the retiring Tony Reardon on the show a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he is officially the former head of the National Treasury Employees Union. The new leader is Doreen Greenwald. She's 57. She's been a national executive VP for the union for the last two years, and was unopposed in the election for the national president. Greenwald has a long and successful career as a frontline federal employee with the IRS in her home state of Wisconsin, including 21 years as a revenue officer. She joined NTEU back in 1985, rose to the ranks of her local chapter to become president of NTEU Chapter 1. That's... uh, IRS workers in Wisconsin. She held that post for 14 years. She has extensive experience negotiating national collective bargaining agreements between the union and the IRS, recruiting new members and representing IRS employees across Wisconsin. After retiring 
from the IRS. Doreen Greenwald moved to Washington three years ago to join NTU staff as special assistant to the national president. And that's where she led the union's COVID-19 response team and worked with chapter leaders from many different federal agencies with employees represented by the NTEU. So we wish her well. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go to the state of Missouri. Jake Hummel will be joining us. Jake serves as president of the Missouri AFL-CIO. We'll talk about building union diversity. They're doing a great job. He'll tell us all about it next right here on the show. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the U.S., US, Canada, Canada, and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Real simple, that would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to... Uh, St. Louis, Missouri right now, and joining us on our live line is Jake Hummel. Jake is president of the Missouri AFL-CIO, longtime union member, three years with the Food and Commercial Workers and 25 years with the IBEW. And like I said, he's the current president of the Missouri Labor Federation, and he's here to talk about a program that uh, piqued my interest. We had Sean McGarvey on the show, president of the North American Building Trades, and he said, boy, you got to find out what's going on in St. Louis. And the guy to talk to is Jake Hummel because they're doing unbelievable work with their BUD program. Now, BUD stands for the Building Union Diversity, a six-week program that's almost 10 years old. And it was created by the St. Louis Building and Construction Trades Council. Jake, talk to me. Well, first off, welcome to uh, America's Workforce. Thanks for joining us today. And I guess you could blame Sean McGarvey for setting this up he said you got to talk to jake about uh, what's going on there and uh, here you are so why don't you explain how this all happened go ahead well thanks first of all i appreciate being on even if it was sean's fault uh uh, (laughs) this organization does amazing work so uh you know i i appreciate him mentioning the program um uh our the missouri flcao has a 501c3 workforce development arm called the missouri works initiative um and it handles all of our workforce development 
needs across the state. And one of our programs is the Building Union Diversity Program in St. Louis that you said yourself started about 10 years ago. Um, it started was started by the building construction trades uh, because they recognized that they were not um, getting in traditionally underrepresented people into the construction trades. Um, they recognized that their job sites, uh, that the people on the job sites needed to reflect the neighborhoods in which they were working. Um, and so they put that program together uh, to get traditionally underrepresented individuals into the building and construction trades. And about three or four years ago now, um, we went to the building trades and St. Louis and said, look, we want to expand this program statewide um, and we want to help you grow the program. Would you consider being on our board and, and letting us take over the BUD program? And they agreed. And, and now we have four of these programs running across the state of Missouri. Um, but certainly BUD is our, our biggest by far. Mm-hmm. Could you get into the mechanics of the program, how it works, who you're targeting, and the requirements? Can you speak yeah. to that? Sure, absolutely. So uh, BUD is a six-week pre-apprenticeship program. Um, it's really an apprentice-ready program. And several years ago, all of the heads of the North American Building Trades Unions got together and said, what are we looking for as a standard for what we want our apprentices to have day one coming into the trade. What is going to be uh, that baseline to make sure that we're going to, that someone's going to be successful. Um, And so they came up with the MC3 curriculum, the multi-craft core curriculum uh, developed by NAB2, which is what we teach in our six week apprenticeship program. Um, It has uh, 40 hours of construction math. Uh, There's blueprint reading. There are, you know, we get OSHA 10 training, um, forklift certification, um, aerial lift certification, um, but, and, but we also do soft skills, resume writing. Um, we do financial literacy, how you know to save for the lean times. Construction, is a, construction isn't always 40 hours a week. Um, and, mm-hmm. and we try to teach them that, you know, to, be, to survive in the industry, you have to know that you're not going to work all the time. Uh, based on the weather or a slowdown of the job or, or something of that nature. Uh, but really what sets the program apart from all the others that are out there, and there's plenty of organizations that think they have the, the right way to do this, is we actually take all of our students to every single one of the apprentice, um, um, apprentice training schools for each of the respective trades. They go and they do hands-on work at each trade, and they find out what they have a particular aptitude for. But more importantly, those apprenticeship coordinators are there, and they see which of our students have an aptitude for their work. And most of the time, they'll grab them off to the side and say, hey, listen, you're really good at this. When you're done with this program, we think this is where you should apply. And so plenty of um, organizations, workforce arms tell people just go and get into construction. It's not that easy. Um, somebody might try being a plumber and find out they hate being a plumber. This way they get a taste of every trade. They find what they like. Um, and we found that they are very successful once they get placed in those programs. They already know that's what they want to do. Um, and it's just a wonderful program. So this is a pre-apprenticeship program. Who are you targeting here? Are you targeting like a high school senior? Obviously, you want to get, uh, you know, people of color 
women minorities. And, and I know you've been very successful at that. I'm going to run down some statistics here at the end of this uh, segment. But um, are we targeting people that are like seniors that are kind of thinking, well, I don't know if I want to go to college. Maybe I want to get into trades. Wait, you, are you are know, we going in that direction? So currently the, the current bud program um, is only dealing with adults. Um, however, starting next semester, uh, um, the fall semester, we're opening a apprenticeship program in uh, one of the St. Louis high schools, and we are going to be targeting those seniors. Um, so when they get out of high school, they'll already know what trade they want to be into. Um, they're going to get credit for the class, um, and they're going to learn some skills. And so when they graduate, those seniors will be able to um, hopefully get placed right away in a, an apprenticeship program. Okay, so up till now, you've been targeting adults. What kind of ages have we been uh, capturing here with this uh, yeah, you with know, the, the program? Age range, is, the age range is actually kind of all over the place. I think the average right now that we've, that we've seen is about 25. Um, the, a lot of our, the vast majority of the folks that we are recruiting are people that are not able to have a really good living uh, with their current occupation. They may be working two or three part-time jobs. Uh, they may be working two. Uh, they may lack health care. Um, and, you know, these, these union construction jobs are the difference between having to choose when you retired of whether you have to pay the electric bill or pay for your insulin, you know, uh-huh. or getting your brakes fixed or making sure that you can – fill the grocery cart at the end of the week. And so these are life-changing careers for a lot of these folks, um, and they're extremely grateful for all the uh, the work that's been put into this. I'm sure. I'm sure of that. Okay, now this started almost 10 years ago. It was created in uh, 2014 by the St. Louis Building and Construction Trades Council. So, Jake, let me ask you this. Obviously, success didn't happen overnight, when did you see this program really taken hold? I mean, how many years did it take? I think, you know, it took a couple of it. Look, being honest, the, the program was working for the first couple of years when it really got together and got clicking. But just mm-hmm. in the last year or two, um, it has been become recognized across the region. Um, the state, Missouri State, Missouri Workforce, um, they've invested in our program. They've helped us expand to four different cities now. Um, and so it's, it's just now getting the recognition. It feeds on itself. Everyone wants to be a part of it. You know, we partner with the United Way. Um, they identify any of the needs and the barriers to our students up front. Um, so if someone has a transportation issue, if someone has, um, you know, they need brakes on their car to be able to get to the apprenticeship schools, uh, we identify those needs and they address them up front. We cover work boots, clothes, um, all the safety equipment. And when they when they get placed in an apprenticeship program, we will pay for their first set of tools. So we, we really try to eliminate all of the barriers necessary for someone to be able to get into the trades. Well, I tell you, I often say this on the show. Success breeds success. And uh, I see the numbers on your latest class here. 92% graduation rate, placement rate, 82%. And in an industry where only 6% of the workforce is comprised of minorities and women, out of the BUD program, graduates, 26.5% are women, and almost 80%, 79.2% of BUD graduates 
are minorities. Jake, did you ever expect this, these kind of numbers here? No, you know, I, I didn't. Um, but we're, we're very proud of it. Um, and, and I'll be honest, our students are our best messengers. All of the folks that, you know, we're talking about numbers. And uh, these are people's lives that have changed. They tell all of their friends, everybody that they know, um, that they've somebody said, you know, it's too hard to get into. They, they tell their friends, their family, no, it's not. Go to this program. It's free. They'll pay you a stipend. It's changed my life. Um, and mm-hmm. we love hearing those stories. It's, it's fantastic. Well, I have to do a shout-out here for all the uh, participating trades. we got the Bricklayers, Local 15, St. Louis, Kansas City, Carpenters Regional Council. Let's see, the Construction Craft Laborers Joint Apprenticeship Training Program. Your union here, IBW, this would be Local uh, 124. The Iron Workers, the Operating Engineers, Local 101, Plumbers and Pipe Fitters, Sheet Metal Workers, Cement Masons, IUPAT, Painters and Allied Trades, the Roofers Training Program, the Elevator Constructors Training Program, Sprinkler Fitters, and the uh, Boiler Makers. So a lot of participation here. Uh, one more question here before you go, because I know you're a busy guy over there in St. Louis, and you, you said you branched out to a number of cities, especially with what Sean McGarvey told our listeners here. I mean, obviously, this is a model that almost every state should embrace. Is any of that happening right now? Are people, other than America's workforce, calling you and say, Jake Hubble, bring this to my state? Is any of that happening? You know, I, I, I can't go. I can't speak for all of the states that it in that it is in, but it's my understanding that it's in almost every state right now. Um, and there's there's quite a few of these programs out there. Um, I think when I talk to some of our partners at Trades Future, which is the workforce development arm of the North American Building Trades Unions, uh, they suggested that we were, you know, had one of the more substantial and robust programs out there. Um, And we were just recently, we just announced we're opening our fourth program. So we have one in St. Louis, which is the BUD program, Kansas City, Springfield, and now in in central Missouri. Um, So... You know, there's a lot of work out there, um, and uh, very grateful to the president um, and with the bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, but I know that um, you know that these economic opportunities are out there, um, and we want to make sure, and the building trades unions want to make sure that those opportunities are available to everyone. Mm-hmm. So we're happy to be a part Seize- of that. Seize the opportunity, because that opportunity is right now. Good to hear. Good to hear. We should give a couple of websites. Now, Jake is with the Missouri AFL-CIO. That's M-O-A-F-L-C-I-O dot O-R-G. And uh, this initiative we're talking about, again, this is a nonprofit organization, the BUD program. It's uh, M-O-WorksInitiative dot O-R-G. M-O-WorksInitiative dot O-R-G. You can see all the components of the program and those statistics that I mentioned here on the show. So, Jake, thank you so much for your time, your dedication on this. Let's let's talk down the road, and especially now that you're going to be targeting some of the high school seniors. Can we do that maybe in the fall? Absolutely. Sounds great. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to link up with labor lawyer Andrew Strom and talk about the importance of all Supreme Court decisions for workers. That story next on America's Workforce. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. 
the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AF. GE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, always connecting people with good employment. You can find more at ulagency.org. Let's go to New York City right now. And as I indicated at the top of the show, Joyce Goldstein taking a few months off and filling in for the next couple of months is Andrew Strom, no stranger to the show. He's been on a number of times. He's a union lawyer for more than uh, 25 years. Now, he does serve as an associate general counsel, at the Service Employees International Union, Local 32BJ, which is located in New York City. But he is not speaking on their behalf. He's a contributor to On Labor, which is a blog about union stories, and I check it out every day when I prepare for the show. And uh, there's a couple of stories that we've talked about over the years, but uh, what we're going to look at today, we got a Supreme Court that's going to start hearing cases in October, and he wants to talk about the importance of all Supreme Court decisions for workers. There's always a worker connection when it comes to courts. Andrew Strom, welcome uh, back to America's Workforce. And uh, I guess there's a case that's uh, that they're going to hear this fall, Loper Bright versus Raimondo. It's not a labor case, as I pointed out earlier, but again, it could affect workers. Can you explain what's going on here, Andrew? Sure. And I think it is, a, you know, a kind of case that could easily be under, you know, slip under people's radar screen, because when I tell you what it's about, you know, people are going to start rolling their eyes and saying, you know, why should I care? Uh, so Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo involves a federal agency that I'm sure most of your listeners 
uh, don't even know exists. It's called the National Marine Fisheries Service. And the industry that's affected is the commercial herring fishers. And again, you know, I don't think a lot of people, you know, spend, you know, eat a lot of herring. I mean, maybe they do. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, this is an obscure issue as to whether uh, this agency, which has one of the things that they have to do is make sure that there is enough, you know, that. That there's an there's an overfishing of herring, so they they are by law allowed to um, require monitors to go out on the ships uh, and see you know make sure that there's not overfishing. And the question in this case is whether they can require the fishing companies to pay for the monitors or not. But the bigger question, really, um, you know, because you might think, okay, that's an important issue for them, but why should anybody else care? So one of the things that's happened over the years with the Supreme Court is, you know, as they take fewer and fewer cases, each case becomes, you know, cases are there for a reason, right? They pick the cases that they take. You know, you think, well, why are they taking this case? Why is that, you know, they're taking here 60 cases this year. Why is that one of them? Well, it's one of them because this whole right wing industry, which is really about big business and billionaires, uh, has ginned this case up as an important case. And there are 50 amicus briefs filed already in support of the industry's position in this case. And amicus briefs are briefs filed by people who don't have a direct stake in the case, but are writing to say, this issue is important to our organization. This issue is important beyond this. And so here you have the National Right to Work Legal Defense Fund, which is, you know, a, you know, an organization funded by wealthy people uh, to try to an anti-union organization that um, makes its living suing unions. Uh, mm-hmm. The Chamber of Commerce, um, a bunch of employer associations, a bunch of right-wing think tanks, they've all filed briefs in this case. And what the issue that the court is going to decide is going to go far beyond this one agency uh, they're all the um, Loper Bright is asking the court to overrule a 40 year old precedent, a unanimous decision uh, in a case called Chevron versus National Resources Defense Council. And what that case deals with is the power of administrative agencies and how courts should approach challenges to decisions that are made by those agencies. And I think it's really important for people to understand the importance of these administrative agencies. Right. Once we started to have large interstate businesses in this country back in the 19th century with the rise of the railroads, what Congress realized was they need specialized agencies to regulate these giant businesses. Right. So the first agency is the Interstate Commerce Commission, created in 1887. Then in the early 20th century, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, a couple of others. And then in the New Deal in 1930s, an explosion of these uh, agencies. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote. I'm going to read to people from uh, Justice Kagan in one of these cases. So the Supreme Court has just been, the right wing on the Supreme Court has just been sort of chipping away at the power of these agencies. And Justice Kagan wrote last year uh, to sort of the importance of this issue. She said, uh, over time, the administrative delegations Congress made have helped to build a modern nation. Congress wanted fewer workers killed in industrial accidents wanted to prevent plane crashes and reduce the deadliness of car wrecks. 
It wanted to ensure that consumer products didn't catch fire. It wanted to stop the routine adulteration of food and improve the safety and efficacy of medications. And it wanted cleaner air and water. If an American could go back in time, she might be astonished by how much progress has occurred in all these areas. It didn't happen through legislation alone. It happened because Congress gave broad-ranging powers to administrative agencies, and those agencies then filled in, rule by rule by rule, Congress's policy outlines. Right? So that's, right. that's what's at stake. And then, in particular, you know, obviously for workers, is the National Labor Relations Board. That's the agency I'm most familiar with. Um, and my guess is that most listeners haven't actually read the National Labor Relations Act, but it's actually pretty short. Um, and it's written in sort of broad strokes, right? It gives workers the power. You know, here's, there's, there's one paragraph in the National Labor Relations Act that gives workers rights, right? And it says, uh, I'll, I'll read that too, employees shall have the right to self-organization, to form, join, or assist labor organizations, to bargain collectively through representatives of their own choosing, and to engage in other concerted activities for the purpose of collective bargaining or other mutual aid or protection, and shall also have the right to refrain from any or all such activities. And then the, what makes it the, the restriction on employers is employers, it's, it's an unfair labor practice, illegal, for employers to, quote, interfere with, restrain, or coerce employees in the exercise of those rights. Which they do right? all the time. <laughs> Which they do all the time. But the yeah. important point is, right, that, you know, Congress didn't say what specifically that means, right? So they didn't say, you know, in um, organizers uh, have a thing that sometimes, I don't know if people have heard this, that it's illegal for your employer to spit on you during an organizing campaign, you know, which is a, uh, you know, a mnemonic for surveillance, promises, interrogation, and threats, right? So nothing in the text of the law says it's illegal for employers to spy on union meetings, to interrogate workers about whether they support the union, to promise benefits, right? Or, you know, or to prevent workers from wearing buttons or any of the other hundreds of different ways, right, that employers can interfere with, restrain, or coerce workers, right? Mm -hmm. That was up to the NLRB to fill in those gaps, right, over time, right, with the, you know, the National Labor Relations Act has been around since 1935. So over those years, you know, they've seen hundreds of different scenarios where, and they have to make these decisions right. about, um, and they, you know, and one of the things is that there's a balancing, right, and it's, they're basically policy decisions, right, there's a balancing because in each case, or many of these cases, the employer says, but I have a property interest, but I have to keep my business running, you know, but I'm just trying to, you know, and, I, and I'll give you one example. Um, and during the Trump years, right, the labor board was very friendly to employers. So uh, the labor board considered uh, um, workplace rules. And one of the rules that um, has often been challenged is employers will have a rule that says, you can't take any photographs in the workplace. Right? So, you know, sometimes that might have some legitimacy. You might have, there are certain workplaces where there's, uh, you know, uh, trades, important top secret things going on. Sure. But in the average workplace, um, there's not really that same interest. And people, workers have a strong interest 
Maybe they want to document, um, you know, the company posts a notice that maybe it has an illegal rule on it and they want to take a picture of it before, it, you know, so that they can show it to somebody and ask their opinion. Or maybe mm-hmm. they, there's an unsafe working condition and they want to um, take a picture of it so they can file a complaint with, with OSHA. Or right. maybe there's, you know, any number of reasons why uh, workers might want to take pictures of something. Uh, you know, they want to show that the time clock is broken. Um, yeah, I mean, and so, but the Trump board said rules against taking photos in the workplace are always lawful. Recently, a few weeks ago, the Biden board um, revisited that question and said, you know what? That's not true. Uh, there's a lot of situations where rules against um, taking photos in the workplace is going to be illegal. Um, and we're going to consider that on a case-by-case basis, but more likely than not, those rules are going to be illegal because they interfere with workers' right, rights under the NLRA. And so that's the kind of thing where, you know, Congress didn't, Congress didn't answer that question. There, that's not a judicial question. But that's what this power grab is all about, is who decides, Yeah. right? And, yeah. and in Chevron, right, what the court said was, if Congress passes a law and gives the agency the authority to enforce that law, if Congress hasn't addressed the precise question, then the agency, then the courts are supposed to defer to the agency's interpretation. I was trying to think of how to illustrate you know, for people, what, what, how, what deference means, right? Uh, you know, and what the court says is, look, maybe this isn't the way, this is, this is the, what Justice Stevens, who wrote the um, unanimous opinion in Chevron, this is what he said. The court need not conclude that the agency's interpretation was the only one that it permissibly could have adopted, or even the reading the court would have reached if the question initially had arisen in a judicial proceeding, right? So in other words, uh, you know, so yeah, I was trying to think of a good example. I was thinking, well, let's say, for example, that my wife asked my daughter to set the table. And so my daughter sets the table and she puts the forks on the left side. And I think the forks should be on the right side. Right? <laughs> uh, and I come to the table after she said it. Right. And what deference means is, okay, so I prefer the fork on the right side, but I'm not, but I acknowledge that she set the table. What no deference means is my way, right? I get to decide, um, you know, because I think that putting the forks on the right side is the best way to do it. Okay. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's not the best example. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm trying try to, you know, because I think this notion of deference and, you know, people don't really maybe appreciate that there's not a right or wrong answer most of the time with, you know, these questions, right? These are policy questions. Right. And if you're asking this question of how do you balance, you know, the employer's property interest versus the worker's rights under the NLRA, you know, where you, how you weigh that really depends on your policy preferences. And the Supreme Court is, you know, sometimes acts like, you know, no, there's a right answer. We're going to parse these words. And, you know, if we just examine the words hard enough, we're going to come up with the right answer, um, which is a fiction. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's. It, and, we're talking interpretation here. That's exactly what we're talking about. You know, yeah, I see it one way. What, somebody else. Yeah, go ahead. You know, back, you know, back in Chevron, that you know, this is another quote from Chevron, right? That um, that Justice Stevens said. He said, "When a challenge to an agency construction of a statutory provision really centers on the wisdom of the agency's policy, rather than whether it is a reasonable choice within a gap left open by Congress, the challenge must fail." And and that's. Um, that's really what's at stake here, because uh, this is just a power grab by the right wing justices and interest groups, right? Because they're worried they can't win presidential elections anymore. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. that's a um, and they're so and they know that they can block things in the Senate because the senators have refused to abolish the filibuster. But what they haven't been able to do. Right. In this administration, they haven't been able to block President Biden from appointing, from making his appointments to the agencies. So it's, you know, at the National Labor Relations Board and at other agencies across the government, the president is appointing pro-worker individuals who are not going to reflexively rule in favor of big business. And one thing I think that's notable is the business group's filed a brief in this case. And they said, well, the courts need to step in here because if the courts don't step in, we, you know, we want stability. And what we have now is we have policies that go back and forth, you know, that the NLRB will flip-flop. They'll go from one policy to another policy. And of course, they don't care about stability. They care about winning. Right? If they yeah. cared about stability, Right. When the Republicans came in, they wouldn't have asked the Republicans to overturn all these decisions that had been made under Obama. Right. <laughs> right, right. Wasn't right. Like, you know, oh, we want them things to be stable. So, you know, it's and, you know, whatever the Biden board does, they're going to ask if there's a Republican board, they're going to ask that Republican board to overturn it. So, it, you know, they'll say they want stability. But really, of course, what they want is they want to win. Andrew, let me interject. They want to win on the backs of workers. That's exactly what we're talking about. Andrew Strom joining us on our live line today. And we're talking about the importance of all Supreme Court decisions. There's a case that they're going to hear this fall, Loper Wright versus Raimondo. It's very important that we dissect what may happen. We'll continue the conversation right after this. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Layuna. Find out what it takes for Layuna to keep America running at Layuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at USW dot O-R-G. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at Teamster.org. 
From the Golden Gate Bridge to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without iron workers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained iron workers and 20,000 apprentices, the Iron Workers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Iron Workers, the sky's the limit. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferrans. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or X, however you want to call it. AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go back to New York City and rejoin Andrew Strom. Andrew serves as Associate General Counsel for the Service Employees International Union, Local 32BJ, but uh, he's not speaking on their behalf. I just want to point that out again. He is here. He's also a contributor to On Labor. Do check that out when you get an opportunity, onlabor.org, and it's a service of uh, Harvard University and uh, the Harvard Law School, actually. We're talking about a Supreme Court decision that will be heard this fall, Loper Bright versus Raimondo, and what this is all about. And It's sad, Andrew. What bothers me about this Supreme Court is they're overturning laws that were, or decisions, I should say, that came out decades ago. And these are decisions. The Janus case is a good example. That was, I believe, clarified back in the 70s and when it popped up in 2018 it was reversed and we're talking about something here the chevron deference as you pointed out in the first segment they want to kind of roll that back it's it seems like all the progress that workers have made over the years they want to unwind it i know they're anti-regulation and all that they're more pro-corporate than they are pro-worker but as an attorney (laughs) i mean a union attorney this is very upsetting, and I know it's upsetting to our audience. What What's the course of action here? I mean, I guess yeah. I guess we have to wait it out until this court changes. It's uh, well, I think I think it's ahead. important for people to understand just how illegitimate this court is, and not to be. You know, there's always been this notion of you know the Supreme Court is you know above politics, or that um, people you know, respect them so much and um, they're, you know, there's so much, um, you know, sort of looking up to them. And I think that it's important for people to see these are politicians in robes and it's really nothing more than that. And they won. They, you know, they got on the court in these, you know, illegitimate ways, right? In 2016, uh, President Obama had an opportunity to make an appointment uh, there was a vacant seat and the Republicans in the Senate held it open for nine months so that Trump could make that appointment instead. Then in 2020, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died a month before the election, all of a sudden, all those principles that they talked about, about waiting until after the election, uh, went out the window because they had mm-hmm. the votes and the power. So they rammed through their nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, there. They handpick people who were appointed, you know, who of uh, the list that Trump had that he was working off of came from this secretive right wing group called the Federalist Society, uh, which he outsourced uh, his nominees, all, you know, carefully selected for their ideology. 
And so they're just, you know, methodically going through their list of there. This is like a Republican, you know, sort of a, a right wing uh, wish list fantasy, right? If you sort of said, uh, you know, like almost like a parlor game of people saying, you know, what are all the cases that we hate? Let's figure out how to uh, reverse them. And it's not supposed mm-hmm. to work that way, right? No. They're not supposed to be picking and choosing. And, and these are, by the way, this Chevron doctrine, this was so settled. You know, the original decision was unanimous. Uh, there's dozens of cases since then where the court has applied it. Uh, Justice Scalia, uh, when he was on the court, um, wrote forcefully endorsing it. Uh, these were, you know, most of the people who are now going to probably overrule it have previously joined decisions um, where they've been, where they've enforced that rule uh, wow. with, you know, with the exception of the newest uh, ones. I mean, actually the reason why Gorsuch got the attention, the reason why Gorsuch got this job in the first place is he wrote an opinion that he was a circuit court judge. He wrote a, a concurring opinion, which is a, a new, very unusual thing to do, right? Circuit court decisions are decided by three judge panels. They're often unanimous. Sometimes there's a dissent, but he wrote this, he had a case out there, you know, when he was on the court, uh, this, and he wrote a separate opinion saying, hey, why do we have Chevron? And that was a very outrageous, bold move, right? Because Chevron had been on the books for 35 years at that time, and it was pretty settled. And yeah. he's tr- doing nothing more than that. That's, you know, people refer to that as auditioning, right? He's wow. just trying to say, hey, look at me. I want to undo, um, you know, the administrative agency power, too. I want to take power away. I'm going to be uh, willing to do the bidding of big business. So, you know, you should think about me when there's a time to move up. And that, that's so- all that was. It's really amazing how one person can have that much power. But we're talking about a Supreme Court justice, and this court has a lot of power, especially against workers right now. Andrew Strom joining us on our live line today. He is the Associate General Counsel for the Service Employees International Union, Local 32BJ, speaking on behalf of On Labor, service of the Harvard Law School. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up on Monday, the American Library Association on book banning and Teamsters Local 320. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful weekend. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.